Well, good morning. Once again, um, I do wish everyone a happy Father's Day. And this is not a Father's Day message, but nonetheless, I do want to acknowledge uh, the, and thank the Lord for the fathers among us and those who are spiritual fathers also. Going to our passage today, we are in 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 9. But before we get into the actual verses, I just wanted to ask a question. How well prepared do you feel in the event of a major disaster? Now, as a home healthcare worker, I have to do a safety assessment on all my patients' homes. And I actually have to ask them quite a few questions about these things. So um, I go through a basic checklist with them. I'll ask my patients um, if there was something like an earthquake or some other major disaster, do you have enough food and water here for at least three to four days? Do you have working smoke detectors in your home? Do you have a fire extinguisher in your house? Do you have a non-electric can opener? Do you have a portable stove? Do you have a portable radio with batteries? Do you have matches? And for my patients who live in a house with stairs, I even have to ask, um, do you have an escape ladder on the second floor in case um, you're stuck there and have to climb out the window? And pretty much all the time, um, my patients, they take these questions seriously. Because they know there are disasters and accidents that have happened before where these kinds of items can be essential. People have had fires in their homes and have died, perhaps because they were stuck on the second floor and couldn't get out safely. There have been earthquakes where the power has been out for a while and you might have to rely on non-perishable food. You know, none of my patients have um, ever laughed at me for bringing up these things. And in fact, a lot of patients, they take it soberly and they, think, they say to me afterwards, well, I really should um, actually get some uh, working smoke detectors in my house, or actually, I really should stock up on some food in case of an earthquake. And none of my patients have ever said to me, I'll never have a fire in my house. I'll never have an earthquake here. Now, especially in California, I think if anyone said that here, I'll never have an earthquake, we would think, well, that person's being really foolish. I mean, earthquakes can happen any time here. And I think we can all agree that we know what the kind of damage these things can cause. I mean, just uh, earlier this year in February, there was a horrible earthquake in Turkey that I think has killed something like 59,000 people at this point. And just in the past few years, like in year 2020 and 2021, tens of thousands of people had to be evacuated in Napa because of the fires that happened there. But today, we're going to look at a group of people who are really doing this very thing. There's a great danger coming their way. And instead of taking the threat seriously, they make a mockery of it. I'm going to read the passage. Chapter 3 of Second Peter. 
Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which, now, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, Peter starts this last chapter by telling the readers of the epistle what is his objective in writing to them. He calls them beloved, because he truly loves the believers, he wants to see them doing well spiritually and able to bear with the dangers that he has been warning them about in First and Second Peter. That phrase, um, stir up, when he says stir up your pure minds by a way of reminder, that might also be translated as awaken. Peter's intent in this epistle and, his, and in his previous epistle was to stir up or awaken the believers. Now, why does he say this? Now, it can be easy, I'll just say, for us to get spiritually drowsy, or maybe another term would be spiritually complacent. This passage is mainly dealing with the Lord's return to earth. Now, no one knows when exactly this is going to happen, but as we go about our daily lives and with all the busyness we have, we can forget, wait a second, the Lord can come back any second. It might even be today. But if I get spiritually complacent, I might get lax on you know, having my regular time in the Word with God. I might get, I might let my prayer time with the Lord slide a little bit every day. I might get taken up with the things of this world. I might lose that sense of urgency I should have about trying to share the gospel with unsaved people. I might, I might need a spiritual wake-up call. Now, in the previous chapter, in chapter 2, Peter warned the believers about false teachers, people who professed to be believers, but they were never really saved. Now, here in chapter 3, though, Peter is turning his attention to a different group of people, whom he calls scoffers, in verse 3. Now, these scoffers are people who are leading thoroughly sinful lifestyles. He says they walk according to their own lusts. They do whatever they want, 
without giving any thought to the consequences of their actions, and not giving any thought to having to face any eventual punishment for their sins. In fact, they make fun of the judgment of God. I'll just quote verse 4 again. They say, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, just to know um, what's being referred to here, um, yeah, what is the promise of his coming mentioned in verse 4? Now, we should make sure we know what this means since this, since this promise is mentioned again in verse 9. Now, just to clarify, uh, from the context of the passage, the promise of his coming, it does not refer to the rapture. It doesn't refer to the time when the Lord Jesus comes to take his church to be with him in heaven. Because a lot of this chapter is dealing with the judgment of God. Now, everyone here who is a believer doesn't have to worry about the judgment that God is bringing down on this earth since the Lord will take every believer to be with him before that happens. Really, the promise of his coming is that Jesus is coming back to this earth in judgment one day. Now, a little over 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The Lord Jesus, who is Almighty God himself, he created the heavens and the earth. He came to this very earth he created as a little baby, born of the Virgin Mary. After living on this earth for 30, about 33 years, finishing his ministry on the earth, dying on the cross and being resurrected, Jesus, we clearly see in the book of Acts, then ascended into heaven where he is right now. But there is a promise of him returning. And when he is returning to the earth, he's not coming back in the same form he did about 2,000 years ago, where he came in the form of a lowly, sin-bearing servant. When the Lord comes back to this earth in judgment, as anyone can read in the book of Revelation, he will come back in his full power and glory as God the Son. He will come back not as a savior of the inhabitants of the earth, but he'll come back as their judge. It's written in chapter 19 of Revelation that he will come with the armies of heaven and will strike the nations with a sharp sword and that he will tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he will be thorough in his judgment in a way that no human judge can be. Every sin done in the open or in secret, everything spoken or unspoken will be judged. It says in Jude, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, we don't have time to go through the whole book of Revelation with the uh, different judgments that God brings down on the earth. But just to summarize, put it in plain and simple terms, 
the Lord will completely destroy this world as we know it. The book of 2 Thessalonians says that the Lord Jesus will in flaming fire take vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel. Now, to paraphrase what um, these scoffers are saying, they said, um, just read verse 4 again, they say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. To paraphrase what they're saying, they might be saying something like, what do you mean he's coming back? You Christians always talk about God coming back to judge people, but is there any indication it's really going to happen? Do you see any signs he's coming back? All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Life on earth goes on just like it always has, and it will keep going on just like it always has. Everything's fine. You don't have to worry about the judgment of God. And you may have heard of some of these people. There are some very vocal atheists these days who make fun of the judgment of God. You may have heard of a man named Richard Dawkins. He's a very prominent biologist. He wrote a book called The God Delusion. And when asked about what happens to him after he dies, he just gave a very flippant remark. He said, well, what's going to happen when I die? I may be buried. I may be cremated. I may give my body a science. I haven't decided yet. There's another man named Christopher Hitchens. He wrote a book called God is Not Great. And even on his deathbed, he died of cancer, I think it was over 10 years ago, but even on his deathbed, he was defiant of the idea of God judging him. He said that um, his illness had in no way softened his stance toward what he calls superstition and religious delusion. Now, I won't bother reading any more comments from these people. It's really not edifying. So, why does Peter want the believers to know about these people, these scoffers? Now, with the false teachers Peter was talking about in chapter 2, Peter wanted to warn the believers about the false doctrines that these teachers were bringing, and also the fact that these false teachers, they had a really nasty agenda. They wanted to exploit the believers with deceptive words, as he said. Now, these scoffers don't pose the same danger. They don't even profess to be believers. They're not teaching destructive heresies, as Peter mentioned in chapter 2. But they can still cause harm to believers. These scoffers can be a major discouragement to believers. Their scoffing can sow seeds of doubt in believers' minds. A discouraged believer hearing their mockery might think, well, why isn't the Lord judging these people? Is he allowing these people to get away with sin? Why is he allowing all the sin to keep happening in the world? It seems like there's so much sin just going unpunished. When is he coming? Why doesn't the Lord come now? Now, as upsetting as it can be to hear people 
making fun of God and his judgment, it's actually not any reason for us to feel discouraged or doubtful about the Lord's promises. If anything, these people are just a sign of the times, and their appearance really just further confirms the truth of the word of God. After all, their appearance here is fulfilling what Peter's mentioning in chapter 3, in verse 3, that you'll have these kind of men appear. And there's a huge error in the thinking of these scoffers. They're mocking the judgment of God when God has already shown that he does judge sin on this earth. So in verse 5, it says, they willfully forget. So these, um, these scoffers, they are willfully forgetting about a number of things here. God created the heavens and the earth. God has judged the earth already in the past, and God will judge it again. It's not a matter of these people being ignorant of these things or just having, having had a lapse of memory regarding these things. These people are intentionally putting it out of their minds that God has a very active role in his creation. It says, by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water in the water. <coughs> God spoke and created the heavens and the earth and every living thing on the earth. <coughs> now, I didn't grow up believing this myself. I, admit, I grew up um, going to public school and I was taught about the Big Bang and the theory of evolution, and I accepted it just as fact. I never questioned it at all growing up. But after being exposed to the Word of God and being shown the many holes in supposed scientific theory of how this earth and life came to be, I realized it really takes a willfulness not to believe that God created the heavens and the earth. A lot of the supposed scientific theories of how things came to be, they, they contradict themselves. Now, I won't I'll promise not to get too scientific. I mean, I was a biology major in Berkeley, but I just want to give a few examples. I'll take something called the second law of thermodynamics. Sounds like a big name, but it's very simple. It's a law of basically that um, things fall apart. Things go towards a state of disorder. And we see this every day. I mean, your clothes eventually wear out because of wear and tear. You might have a wall of a building that's years and years old, eventually it falls apart. You can't unscramble an egg. And yet, when um, a physicist these days might be asked, well, how did the planet Earth come to be? How were the planets formed? They will go into this weird explanation of how a series of random collisions of gas and dust particles formed into a planet. And that just makes no sense. You're having a state of disorder come into order. I mean, I might as well be saying that my six-year-old's really messy room can somehow clean itself up. It doesn't make sense. Really, what makes sense is 
what's in Romans chapter 1. It says, for since the creation of the world, his, that is God's invisible attributes, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. All of creation is evidence of God's power. And all things have not continued as they were from the beginning of creation, as these scoffers are saying. These scoffers might be making fun of the judgment of God, saying that basically God has never executed judgment on earth, never will, but the fact is God already has executed judgment on this earth once and destroyed everything before with the flood. In the days of Noah, God judged the earth with the flood, as Peter mentions when he says the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. And once again, this is something that people willfully forget. It's sad, but there's actually a lot of evidence that the flood actually happened, but people try to explain away. Now, once again, I promise not to get too scientific, but um, when you, um, I used to want to be a paleontologist, a person who dug up dinosaur bones. Um, now, one of the weirdest thing is, um, you know, you, you picture finding dinosaur bones in, or fossils of marine animals, like in the desert or something, or just um, in, the, in some mountain ranges. But the weird thing is, you can find um, the fossilized remains of sea animals on Mount Everest, the highest place in the earth, like miles up high. Or sometimes you might have a really weird phenomenon, like you might find a bunch of fossilized whales and dolphins enclosed in a mountain range, in a valley, deep, deep in a valley. Now, how did they get there? And, I mean, yeah, scientists have really weird explanations of how that would happen, but to, to anyone, any believer, it's obvious. Uh, the earth was flooded with water up to the mountain peaks at some time. The flood did happen. As also, this very creation, it's not as if God created the heavens and the earth and then they just exist automatically. Creation itself is being held together by the word of God. As we see in verse 7, when Peter says that the heavens and the earth which now exist are preserved by the same word. But just as a world that then existed in the days of Noah was destroyed by water, this world that now exists will be destroyed by fire. <clears throat> a believer still might wonder, though, what, well, what is taking the Lord so long to fulfill his promise of coming back to judge this earth? Things are getting really bad in the world right now. It seems people are just getting, things are just getting worse day by day with so many sins being committed. Why doesn't the Lord just come back and judge the sinful world right now. And a believer suffering severe persecution could ask a question even more strongly than us. There are many martyrs out there, believers who have been killed for their faith in the Lord Jesus. And the question martyrs themselves are seen asking is recorded in Revelation. It's in chapter 6. The martyrs ask, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. 
It's upsetting to us when we see sin go unpunished. And it could be discouraging to have to wait so long for the Lord's coming. So what is the Lord waiting for? We have our answer in verses 8 and 9. Beloved, I'll just read this verse again. Beloved, do not forget this, this one thing, that what the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. God doesn't experience time like we do. Time is something he created, just like everything else we see in front of us. God hasn't lost track of time like as we might do. Being eternal, 1,000 years for the Lord could be one day, or in the the perspective of eternity, 1,000 years might seem like less than a blink of an eye. same time, God experiences every second in a way that we don't have the capacity to. God hasn't delayed his judgment. It's coming at the perfect time that he intends for it to come. And Peter continues in verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. What does that word slack mean? It might mean slow or delaying. Scoffers that Peter mentioned basically say, the Lord is late in his judgment. But the Lord's not late. The reason he has not judged the earth yet is because he is being long-suffering with us. He is waiting very patiently for every last soul on this earth to get saved. Now, sometimes I get a glimpse of what it means to be long-suffering in my workday. There are times where I might come by a patient who has um, maybe some severe dementia or Alzheimer's, and they um, sometimes can be very difficult people to take care of. They might be combative and aggressive. And I've seen people like this. They sometimes treat their family horribly. And yet, because their family member loves them so much, that family member takes the abuse as a caregiver. I remember my, watching my mom. She was, uh, I would say, very long-suffering and taking care of my grandmother after she suffered a stroke. But the long-suffering of God is on a completely different scale. The Lord, day in, day out, is patient with billions of people committing sins against him all the time, personal offenses against him 24-7. And though we live in times where it seems people are getting more hardened and resistant to the gospel, there are still people being saved. It says in verse 9 that the Lord is not willing that any should perish. The Lord doesn't want anyone going to hell. 
He wants everyone to come to repentance, everyone to come to know him. I know I fail to appreciate this about the heart of God, but he loves people so much, he wants every single person on this earth to get saved. How do we apply this passage today? Well, one application is obvious from the start. Peter tells the reader to be mindful of the words of the holy prophets and the commandment of the apostles. The holy prophets referring to the Old Testament prophets and the apostles being people like Peter himself, like John, like Paul, people who wrote down the New Testament. You could really say Peter's telling us to be mindful of the word of God. And how do we do this? That's simple, really. I need to be reading the word of God on a regular basis, taking the word of God in like my daily meals. If I keep myself regularly in the word of God, I have a rather reminder of the Lord's presence, of his power, and of his promises. It won't matter if I meet a person who is a scoffer or if I come across a false teacher trying to spread some false doctrines. I know the truth. And the truth is that whatever anyone might say, the Lord Jesus is coming back. By keeping in the word of God constantly, you give yourself a protection from whatever attacks a scoffer or a false teacher might bring your way. And the long-suffering of God is a character trait that we're called to imitate. Believers are called to be long-suffering. Now, I'll confess, I'm, I'm tempted to give up on people sometimes. You know, the, I, yeah, there are some times where I see people who are so hard-hearted towards the gospel, and I think, there is no way that person can get saved. I'll confess, um, there, um, there's a certain aunt I pray for every day. It's been over 20 years I've been committing her to prayer. And yes, there are days where I wonder, well, will my Aunt Mabel ever get saved? Well, the fact is, the Lord says he's not willing that anyone should perish. It's not his will for this person to go to hell. He's waiting for this person to repent and come to him. And the fact is, too, I may not, I, I may not see the fruits of being long-suffering. I did read an account uh, written about the life of George Mueller. He prayed for some friends of his for a long, long time. Um, and he, he saw some of them come get saved. I believe three of them. But some he didn't. He prayed for two of these friends for over 50 years, and then he died. But after he died, they did come to know the Lord. Now, one thing I should ask myself just in looking at this passage, talking about the judgment of God, do I really believe myself in the judgment of God? Because if I do, that should give some urgency to me trying to share the gospel with people. How much time do I really have left to try and share the gospel? 
with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. There are times where I mistakenly assume, well, I'll have plenty of time to wince that person. Or I might have years to have a friendship with this person, but really I don't know how much time I have because I might have a few years or I might just have a few days. The Lord could return at any time. Every day, really, I should be praying for a chance to share the gospel with someone because it is God's will that the people I run into in my life who are not saved, that they should come to repentance. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the promise of your coming. And we do pray for ourselves this week. We do pray that we would have that chance to point a soul towards you to lead someone to repentance. And thank you, Lord, in your son's holy name.